Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to welcome you this Sunday morning to what promises to be an action-packed, edge-of-your-seat thriller in Acts 23 and 24. I promise you a real barn burner. You will see in these two chapters, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ working through His servants. And who knows what the outcome will be. But you know that if God is for them, who can be against them? You will see many plots, twists, and turns in this. I promise you this will be a real barn burner. Our characters in today's series of two chapters are first and foremost, first and foremost, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is committed to work through his servants and his children. Hallelujah. I promise you there will be no dull moment. And Paul, wherever he has gone, there he has created quite a stir. And his opponent, Coming in with 70, the Sanhedrin, led by Ananias. We have also Lysias the Tribune and Felix. So when I promise you there will not be a dull moment in this two chapters. So strap in, we're going to dive in and watch what God does in these two chapters. All right. Now. I want to tone it back just a little bit, <clears throat> not to be sacrilegious here, but what I want to say is there is a lot of action in Acts 23. And I had to catch my breath, but doing Acts 24, I will read that to give it due diligence. But Acts 23, there is action galore. So having said that, Maybe a good place to start is just with a word of prayer here before we, we launch in here. Father, you are good. You're good all the time. We thank you for your, your presence, for your eye upon us. I thank you for what you've shared with me. And I pray, Lord, to be hidden you. And I pray that you would speak clearly through me in great clarity, impart wisdom and understanding to, to the hearers here. And uh, do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask, think, or imagine. And Father, just as Paul was lit up by you to do your work, to, to, to accomplish your purposes, uh, and to walk in your ways, pleasing unto you, so let that be for us. As Paul is an example for us, and as you have handed the baton off to us, let us take that baton and run in the same way that Paul did. To your glory, for our good and for the advancing of your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the first things that I want to say right out of the gate here is that, you know, no matter in these chapters of Acts, no matter how much you uncover, how much I uncover, there's always more to be discovered. There's always more. And that's good. There's always more. And I, I believe that this morning God wants to draw us in and to see his faithfulness, to see that he is always not taken by surprise. He is even to, able to take that which seems to be for evil and turn it and work it to, to good for his children. And so... Um, the second thing that I wanted to say coming out of the gate this morning, 
Because we're going to see this right from the get-go when Paul comes before the Sanhedrin. Paul, Paul says, um, looking earnestly at the council. And last week I shared uh, a prophetic word about, you know, the idea that when we blow out a candle to make a wish on a birthday to extinguish a candle... When the Lord blows into our lives, it's not to extinguish us, it's to light us up. It's to light us up with his love, to light us up with his grace and his mercy and to bring life to us and to build us up in him, to enjoy him, to enjoy our relationship with him, but also to walk out the purposes and plans that he has for us and the sphere of influence that he places us in. It's not just that we get to live in a bubble. We actually get to go out into the world, push back against the darkness. We get, to, we get to bring good news to the brokenhearted. We get the opportunity and privilege to bring hope. And even Paul references that today in Acts 23 and 24. So when this trial is going on, Paul wants to get the emphasis off of him and on the resurrection and the hope that we have and that he has in the resurrection. And that he is going to right all the wrongs on that day. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. So, when he blows into our lives, that is, that is a powerful, not just a cliche, that is a life-changing thing. And God does that by speaking to us, by touching our hearts, and through his word, by his presence. And so, this morning, I just want to remind us of something that David had shared just a couple weeks ago because this is going to have a direct bearing on the, on the opening verses here. So, maybe the best way to do it is this. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Where have we heard the words looking earnestly? Any idea? Anybody want to venture a guess? When one of the uh, uh, lame persons was healed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me share with you uh, one of the, the things that, uh, that David had mentioned just a couple of weeks ago about... When, uh, when we read a story, pay attention to the wording of the story. Repeat wording or phrases, odd wording or phrases, similar actions to other stories. And so, um, and he made a very astute point. Re reading the Bible requires attentiveness. We would prefer sim simple short statements telling us what to do and what the purpose of the stories are. However, this is just not the way the Bible talks to us. The largest percentage is story and, and, uh, and scripture is expecting us to work and to meditate. And he's right. And so with this, with this phrasing here, right out of the gate of uh, looking earnestly, there's actually 12 times in the scripture Ten times in the book of Acts and twice in the book of Luke. 
So when Paul, use, uh, so when Luke uses the word looking earnestly, picture it says looking earnestly. The word means to stretch. So if 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 he's looking, just kind of think of the cartoons where the eyeballs are stretching out of the socket, and just they are really, really, really focused on the individual. And Paul is, look, I know I'm off camera, okay. But Paul is looking up close. He, with, with his eyes, he's looking that seriously at the council. If you figure there's a room of 70 men and they're, they're coming with an agenda and they're trying to intimidate him, it didn't work. Paul comes right in there. And he says he looks steadfast, he looks earnestly on them. So what, what we actually see here, as Paul is looking at them, we're going to see the response of the Sanhedrin to them, and you're going to see light and darkness. Now in the confrontation or in the illustration of light and darkness, when you turn on a light in a room, who wins? The light does. In John, it says the darkness could not overcome the light and so Paul goes on from there and he says men and brethren so he, it's interesting he doesn't use you know what I should do I'm going to just read a couple of the other verses here where, where it talks about looking earnestly or steadfastly so when Jesus in Luke 4, when he reads from the Gospel of, uh, uh, he reads from Isaiah 61, it says, when he was done reading, all the eyes were fastened on him as he returned to where he sat. So imagine that. And then going on from there, um, there's, there's Luke 22, verse 56. This is, this is the, the maid who saw Peter in, in the outside court there and she stared at Peter for the longest time and said, you're one of him. And then the rest, the other 10, are in the book of Acts. And so Acts 1.10, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, so the ascension of Jesus, and Peter fastening his eyes upon him, the man who sat at the gate beautiful, Acts 3, you men of Israel, why do you look so intensely at us? When, uh, when the people come and gather around them after the miracle of the healing. And then uh, Acts 6, 15, and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on Stephen saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And then Stephen, full of being full of the Holy Ghost, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Acts 10, Verse 4, Cornelius, when he had this vision and saw an angel, and he stared at him in terror. Acts 11, verse 6, Peter's vision on the rooftop, looking at it closely. Paul in Acts 13, 9, Paul and Elymas, the magician, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intensely, looked intently upon him. And then in Acts 14.9, Paul and Barnabas and Lystra, a man sitting who could not use his feet, 
crippled from birth? Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith. So Paul uses this word numerous times. And here again, he uses it again to make a point. And that point being that, that Paul is being lit up by God. That, that Paul is looking earnestly with an expectation to speak and, and a confidence about him. And so he then says men and brethren. He doesn't address them as a superior and him being inferior he addresses the Sanhedrin as being on equal footing because he was a Pharisee, because he was one of them. And again, I think that just reflects that God doesn't waste anything in a person's life, but God uses everything. But the most important thing is that I believe because Paul being filled with the Spirit and the wisdom of God, not only does he look on them earnestly, but he puts himself on the same footing as them. And he is. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What a statement. What a statement. To live every day in the presence of God as though God, his eye is on me, he's with me every moment. I purpose to live every day with a, with a clear with a good conscience until this day. It reminds me of Psalm 16, verses 7 and 8, where David writes there, I have set the Lord always before me. And I, I believe, you know, when, when we allow that thought to, to penetrate us, to, to think about being in His presence, That is going to have an effect on how we carry ourselves, on what we say, what we do, how we live, how we respond, both to the spontaneous moments and to, the, and to future things. Because every moment of every day, we do, we do live in His presence. And just for good measure, He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He watches over our going in and our going out. I love that. And because of that statement, I have set the Lord always before me, David writes, I shall not be shaken. We can make that same claim, that same statement, because of who the Lord is. But that doesn't sit well with the high priest. As a matter of fact, I, I believe what we see here is that light and that darkness confrontation and he orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. He doesn't want Paul to speak. He doesn't want to hear what Paul has to say. And I, and I believe that because of Paul being light in the room, giving light to all in the room, the darkness has one of two responses. You eat, or I should say Ananias has one of two responses. You either come into the light and let God do his work or you try to put out the light and you don't want anything to do with the light. 
because you love the darkness. And that was, that's what he was trying to do. He's trying to say, we want nothing to do with that light. Strike him on the mouth. We don't want to give him a chance to speak. And then Paul's response to that is not out of anger, not out of, hey, and just going off the handle. No. Paul gives a response. And he says, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, where have we heard those words before? Yeah, and who was he talking to? He was. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Now, <clears throat> Paul, had, Paul was in the right there with what the law said. But quickly, on the heels of that, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Now what is Paul going to do? He could have, he could have said, hey, I've got the law on my side and I'm standing my ground and who knows how that could have played out. There could have been an uproar and chaos right then and there. But Paul makes this response. I did not know, brethren, that he, is the high that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. <clears throat> so while Paul may not like or may have an issue with Ananias, Paul respects the office. And Paul devotes a fair portion of Romans chapter 13 to, the, to that whole issue of how we are to conduct ourselves. And there's been a time or two more than that when I've had to repent about what I've seen going on in our nation with leadership. But God has a way. God is in control. God knows how. The things that are in Romans 13 are not just for us, how, what we're to do, but it's also to instruct the leaders in their responsibilities and what they're supposed to do. And, one, I, and just one other uh, side note, as I was researching this, uh, later on, uh, <clears throat> after Ananias was no longer high priest, he was killed by the Jewish people. So, was Paul speaking prophetically? Maybe. But in any event, so, does it look like Paul's going to get a fair trial? Well, he's been struck on the mouth, and I believe that's an innuendo to say, hey, you're not going to get a chance to speak. Um, oh, and by the way, who else was struck in the court, in the head? Yeah. So we, just like Paul here, Paul's life mirrors the life of Christ. And our life will mirror 
the life of Christ. And just as Jesus encountered hatred, we're going to encounter it. He said, don't be surprised. Don't marvel. If they've, if they've hated you, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he says in another place in 1 Peter, don't think it's strange the fiery trial concerning you. So then, Paul knows who his audience is. But when Paul perceived there, just as that word jumped off. When, when Paul perceived that, when you perceive there's going to be something that's going to be significantly highlighted. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and one part were Pharisees. Anybody got an idea what's coming here? Okay, we know from the Gospel of Matthew the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees do. So what does Paul do? He lets the cat out in the room full of pigeons and basically says, resurrection! And what happens? The fight is on! And Paul's in the middle because they hope, the Pharisees hope and believe in that there is a resurrection. And the Sadducees don't. And so, because he is a Pharisee, even though they take issue with Paul, he's one of them. They got to rally to him. They got to take a side. So back and forth, they're, they're, he, they're being, he's being tugged on. They're violently. And so, I am a son of the, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, I want to say one more point here because Paul has a goal in mind. There's a bigger goal. Uh, this, was a, uh, this was a tactical maneuver. He's not going to get a fair trial here. But what he wants to do is he wants to get the focus off of him and on Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. That message has been clear from the beginning to now. It's been stated in the early chapters that message has not been deviated. The goal, the end game is still Jesus, that he rose from the dead and that there is hope now and in, in the life that is to come. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Again, verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force among them and bring him back into the barracks. Into the barracks. There is a lot of churning going on here. Just imagine 70 people in a room like this and there's a violent tugging back and forth between Paul being in the center of it. And now you've got Roman soldiers that are flooding the room to try to, uh, to bring some order to the, the chaos, if you will. It's a pretty... It's a pretty uproarious scene. You choose the word. Um, it's pretty intense. 
And so Lysias sees all this and he, and he orders his Roman soldiers in there and they take, they take Paul back to the barracks for safekeeping. But the following night, I like this. Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees in one of the verses here that I just read, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And the next night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so must you also bear witness at Rome. So if you, if you remember nothing else about this sermon today, I want you to remember this point. But the following night, the Lord stood by Paul. That sounds so simple, but that is so powerful, that is so awesome, that is so amazing, that the Lord stands by Debbie. The Lord stands by Dan. The Lord stands by Joy. Now, I could go around to each one of you, but just think about that for a minute. The power of who that is, the power of his presence, the power of what he brings, and that he chooses to stand by Paul, and he stands by each one of us. That should do something in the inside of you forever. And no power of hell will pluck him from, will pluck you from his hand. And no power can separate you from the love of God. And that because of that, because of who he is, we are more than conquerors through Christ. And those circumstances may be shaky because Paul, because the Lord stands by Paul, he is the one who makes Paul able to stand. And what does he tell Paul? Be of good cheer. Was that a suggestion? No. That, the wording is that's a command. And I believe be of good cheer the, the, the timing of this is precious because the Lord knows what to say and, he, when, and when to say it. And just think about, as I demonstrated there, what that does on the inside to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits. It reminds me of that verse in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And just for good measure, it also reminded me of a hymn that we sing from time to time. Great is thy faithfulness. Remember the last verse? Pardon for sin and peace that endurance that endures. What's the very next line? Thine own dear what? Presence. Presence. To do what? What was that? 
to cheer into God. That should make us excited. That should cause us to soar like the eagle above whatever we may face, whatever may be coming, even though it may not be here yet. We don't have to be daunted by it or fearful by it, but we can rejoice. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with how many? 10,000 besides. Sorry, I got a little animated there, but I don't apologize. We need to be excited. We should be excited. You know, I'm just going to digress for just a moment. I'm sorry. But you know in that verse, and it says, Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. What does that look like? All that is within me. That means don't hold back, brothers. Tell them what you really think. In love. And he goes through that whole list of why. But bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Be of good cheer. Paul needed to hear those words. Be of good cheer. Paul didn't know what the days ahead were going to bring. He didn't know what, what things were going to look like. And so the Lord comes and stands by Paul and says, be of good cheer. Now, quiz time again, where we heard those words before, be of good cheer. That's right. Be of good cheer. Because, and what's, the, what's the, ver, uh, the words right ahead of that? He says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but that's not the end of it. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So when he says be of good cheer, he gives the reason why there is reason to cheer. So five times he uses that, be of good cheer. That's the way the, the New King James translates it. Um, some translations say take courage. Some say take heart. But it's the idea of be of good cheer. The man who, who was a paralytic, who was bedridden, hey, it was be of good cheer. Why? Because your sins were forgiven. So in every one of those instances, when, when the disciples are out in the water, in their boat, in a storm, and they say, it's a ghost. What does Jesus say? No. Be of good cheer. It's me. So it's his presence. He gives the reason why there is reason to cheer and to be courageous. And so here, Paul, be of good cheer. And so he, he commends Paul. He, compliment, he commends Paul. He encourages Paul. Paul, you've testified for me in Jerusalem. You've done exactly what, you've want, what I've wanted you to do. And Paul doesn't even have a clue yet about the conspiracy that's coming, the assassins to kill him. But he will. But here's the idea that Jesus comes to him and tells him, you must also bear witness at Rome. So it doesn't matter whether there's going to be 40 assassins or 4,000 assassins. If Paul is going to go to Rome, he's going to go to Rome. Why? Because the God of the universe stands by Paul and said, this is the work I have for you. 
And there's something else that I was reminded of. You know, there was a scene where the, the Jews took issue with Jesus and they were going to throw him over the cliff. And he just says he passed through their midst. It wasn't Jesus' time. And so, Paul, God, God has work for Paul to do. And until that happens, he's, it's, it's not going to be Paul's time. A question? Um, Paul probably knew because he saw Jesus' life. Like he saw through Jesus what happened to him and then other prophets. And, and, and it's just a pattern. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very smart man. I'm sure he knew. But what was most amazing about it is it didn't matter whether he knew or not. It's because God told him and he followed without a doubt. And that's what he wants us to do. Mm-hmm. Good insight. And so the next day, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So there's just uh, one, one comment that I'd like to make. You know, this was... They, they're putting Paul on trial here, but the tables are being turned on the Jews themselves. And where the temple used to be a place of worship and order, now it's become a place of chaos and riot and violence. And the Jews, the Jews are the ones that are exposing themselves, the very things that they accuse Paul of doing, they have been and are guilty of doing. And so who's really on trial here? Who's really, whose hearts are really being exposed here? And who is, who's the judge in the bigger picture here? It's Jesus. And what's, and what's really sad is that how God wanted to use the Jews, how he wanted to use that nation of people to bring the gospel, to, to bring the kingdom to the rest of the world. And they've, they've, they've failed at it. Now, it doesn't mean that all, all Jews are in that category, I want to be clear. But these, these here, these are, that are in leadership, should have recognized that if they knew the scriptures. And that God wanted to use them to be a light to the rest of the world and bring them and bring the rest of the world through them to, to Christ and use them as the, as the agent. And they missed out. But God's not done with them. So, when Paul's sister, when Paul's sister's son, so Paul has a family. 
Heard of their ambush, he went, entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? So, here in a pivotal moment, God chooses and uses a boy, a youth, that is pivotal in saving Paul's life. God is no respecter of persons when it comes to his kingdom and who he wants to use. Just think of other youth that God has used in the Bible mightily. Even when they were a youth and then grew up into an old man. Think, I think of Samuel for one. I think of David for another. Think of even Timothy, who, who is Paul's spiritual son. He says, let no man despise you because of your youth, but be an example to them. Jeremiah, Jeremiah another one. There, there are many. So it, it's not like youth get to go into some kind of a holding pattern or got a circle around some spiritual airport until God taps you on the shoulder. No. The moment you come to Christ and acknowledge that you need him in your life, that he paid the price in full for your sins, and say, God, I need you. I want you to take control. I can't do this on my own. You're available. You're eligible. And the one, the one who calls you is the one who will equip you. You don't have to go to... School is important, but school is not the qualifying thing. It's the understanding that God gives you and how he brings that into your life. And that, that's through relationships and there's other things with that. But being available to allow people to speak into your life, godly friends, all of those things work together. But know that there is not the adult and there is the youth in God's kingdom, the playing field is equal. The same amazing, unfailing, abundant grace that is there for adults is there for the kids as well. And just think about like Samuel, for example, the kind of relationship that he had where none of his words fell to the ground. But I thought it's kind of neat in this, uh, besides that, that this, this man of great authority comes with the, to this youth, takes him by the hand. I'm just thinking about this. This is a guy of great authority, and I'm thinking, he's, he's wanting, I'm just thinking he wants the guy, hey, you've got something to say. I just want you to be at ease about what we're going to talk about and just kind of set the atmosphere. This isn't like, come over here. I'm the soldier, and you better listen to me. And when I say jump, you better ask how high. It wasn't anything like that. 
But I think it's significant that, he's, that he takes him by the hand and asks him privately. And so the youth, um, the youth tells the commander um, about the plot. And then uh, what I thought was really interesting, you know, I'm sure that the Jews watched carefully how they interacted and what they did with, with the Romans and the, with the Roman soldiers and with the, with the government. But here's, here's the response then of um, Lysias, the tribune, to, to the information that's been revealed to him. He calls for two centurions, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to set on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now, I may not know a lot about Romans, but I think they were pretty good at being soldiers. And the way they were dressed and the armament that they had, I wouldn't want to take one of them on. But what does he do here? 200 soldiers. Picture this. This is one man. 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen. 200 spearmen. That's a lot of men for one man. But they're committed to get Paul safely to the governor, Felix, for the next phase, if you will, for, for the next step that's going to unfold. And so he writes this letter to the governor and he, he tells him, you know, I, I discovered this plot and I rescued him. Now, wait a minute. Is that the way this accurately happened? Weren't you the guy that was about ready to whip Paul to interrogate him? It's funny how the story kind of changed there a little bit. But, you know, he's kind of wanting to put himself in a good light there with Felix the governor and say, man, you can count on me. I'm, the, I'm, I'm your man. I did this job. I was on the ball. But there is something significant In verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. That's a big deal. The Romans, he found nothing had been charged against him deserving death or chains. Now, if you would have asked the Sanhedrin that, you would have got a biased, completely different answer. But here you have an impartial person coming to this conclusion and he's not the only one so you would think that it would bid it would it would bode well for Paul 
So they took Paul by, by night, and he's, he's there. And um, then going into Acts 24, he said, I will hear your case when the accusers, when your accusers come. And so he, he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. praetorium. So to give it due diligence, I'm going to read somewhat quickly through Acts 24 because it is the word of God and it was a part of what we're to hear today. But I believe that even in the, re the reading of it, God knows what he wants to highlight to each one of us. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusa accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Give me a break. This guy, he is just flattery all over the place. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. Can you just see how he's tainting the picture here just a little bit? It made me want to take some Pepto-Bismol after kind of reading that, but it's, that's neither here nor there. It's just, it's just the abject hatred that they have for Christ and the hatred that they have for Paul. Paul aroused such hatred and they viewed him as such a threat that they went through these series of steps barring none to take his life even to snuff him out. So this is light that we don't have to be convicted by. This is a message that we, we don't want to hear. And at all costs, with every evil intent in our heart, this is what we're going to do. So he even accused Lysias of taking them out of their hands by force, trying to paint him in a bad light. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they, found, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, 
believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. There he had that similar comment that was made at the get-go in Acts 23 about how Paul chose to live and to strive uh, to have a conscience without offense toward God and to live in such a manner that was reflected that. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they have found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead and I am being judged by you this day. So Paul's saying, hey, if I got one fault per se, it was the fact that I said resurrection and created the, the outburst. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And, some days after, and, and, and after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So just a, a couple of points in here, quickly to mention, is that you see, you see the flattery that was paid by, by Ananias and, uh, and Tertullus that he, extends to, uh, that he extends to Felix. And then all the charges there, they really, really saw Paul as a big threat. And Paul doesn't interrupt. He lets, he lets Tertullus say all that he wants to say. And finally, Paul gets a chance to speak and speak he does. And one of the interesting things I believe to take away from here about the resurrection, which I believe is important, is that there is a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. 
and about, and about righteousness and self-control. And uh, he, he refutes, Paul refutes all of those points that were brought against him point by point by point. He said, I'd only been in the temple 12 days. Six of those days, I'm being held in prison. And they didn't find me. And when they found me in the temple, what was he doing? Was he inciting anybody? No. So all the evidence that Paul presents is clearly obvious that he is not guilty of what they, he's been accused of. And so I believe when Paul has the opportunity then. And again, he says, I'm a, I always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And I believe having a clear conscience is a powerful, powerful thing that no matter who tries to look you in the eye or look you down, you know that before God, you have right standing. If you've done nothing that's violated, his commands or was unrighteous. And so Paul's doing what, what Jesus talks about, those that when God does a work in him, they come into the light. That's what it says in John 3, that they could testify to the fact that the deeds they're doing are wrought in God. That's what, it's, that's what it says in John 3. And, uh, and so how he addresses and, and sits together, gets together with Felix. And, and he, keep, he keeps coming back. Paul's planting seeds and he wants to hear more. But then when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, so about righteousness, so he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. And then Felix responds, he was afraid and answered, go away for now. So I feel that when the light was there, Felix has a choice to make. Do I come into the light or do I stay in the darkness? And just one other side note about um, Felix, if you will. Um, the way that he married Tr uh, Drusilla was not the right way to go about it. And um, that's what historians say. And so I'm, I'm sharing that with the, the idea that that probably factored into that as well. And then here we have these, these closing verses. All the time when he gets together, Paul, give me a little something on the side here. Where was Felix's heart really then? He, was, he kept coming back. He wanted him back, but what he was really wanting was money. And so, I see on Felix's part, there was a divided heart. And if there's a divided heart, the, heart, the part that's divided is usually the part that's going to have the final say if it's, if it's that, that part that you don't want to let go of, if that, that he doesn't want to let go of in terms of hoping that money would be given him. 
And then after two years, you know, it says Festus was succeeded, but he wanted to do the Jews a favor, and so he left Paul bound. Despite what was written to him in the letter by Lysias, Paul chooses, uh, or um, Felix chooses to do the Jews a favor and hangs on to him. But I just in a note, so this doesn't end in a downer. So Paul is held in prison for two years. But you know, while he's in prison for two years, he writes all those epistles. And you see what the fruits of those epistles are to this day. And even though he says, I'm in chains, don't be ashamed. He says the word of God is unrestrained. You cannot stop the word of God from spreading. You cannot stop the gospel from spreading. Don't be sad for me. And Paul, even when he's in, in prison, he, he writes, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And when those final days come, he says, I have fought the fight. And he won the fight. And he ran the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life. Does that sound like a guy who ended on a downer and what's to become of me? No, this is Paul that even though circumstances would say, You're, this is it, Paul in heart and spirit is running a full sprint to the finish line with the author and finisher of his faith, Jesus Christ, by his side. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, Lord, for standing by each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to each one of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the plan you have for each one of us, a plan for welfare and not calamity, a future and a hope. Thank you, Lord, that you left heaven, you came to earth, you made a way, darkness could not prevail, did not prevail, you reign and rule, and you've seated us in heavenly places with you, you've made us your children, you've called us your own, you chose us and appointed us that we should bear fruit, much fruit, and that that fruit should remain. Father, I, I pray that the words that were spoken today burn in our hearts. Light us up. We can't do anything of ourselves. We give you our weaknesses. You are our sufficiency. You are our strength. You are our all in all. And we purpose this day, Lord, in going forward. Be our vision. Be our best thought. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, that you make it all possible. Bless all the hearers in this room and may the words, your words prosper in the heart of every hearer now. In Jesus' name, amen.